I had a weird kind of connection to chicken figures from when I was younger. I worked one summer as a, as a chef at a summer camp. I just remember one of the campers, I don't even know how we got this arrangement, refused to eat anything other than chicken fingers. So we'd be in there, like whatever the meal that we were making for 600 people, and then somebody had to make the plate of chicken fingers and fries for this kid. Every day somebody had to make a plate of chicken fingers and fries for this kid, and if he didn't get them, like all hell was breaking loose. And I had other friends who were picky eaters, and like that just always kind of stuck in my head that like for the pickiest of eaters, the only thing they want to eat is chicken fingers and fries. Kind of felt like who doesn't like chicken fingers? So you started a business. My name is Jeff Estes, and my goal is to share the stories of a whole lot of interesting people who started some really cool businesses as I travel the country and the world. These businesses all vary in size and span a wide variety of industries. This is So You Started a Business. So this past year, when I was working in Manhattan, I kept hearing about this chicken finger place that I had to try. And so one day for lunch, I finally forced myself, I skipped the dollar slices for a day, and I tried some chicken fingers at Sticky's Finger Joint. I mean, the rest was history. I was hopping off the subway multiple times a week, getting some Nashville numb, some chicken, some Cajun fries, just forget about it. And so that's why this week I'm pumped to talk to John Sherman, who is the CEO and founder of Sticky's Finger Joint. So they have eight locations throughout New Jersey, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. And John's story is just so crazy. Like, the dude went from Michigan University to JP Morgan, to Bridgewater Capital, to Sticky's Finger Joint. I mean, the dude went from a huge investment bank to the largest hedge fund in the world to the best chicken fingers in New York City. It's so cool. I'm excited for you guys to listen. So let's check it out. So John, where'd you grow up? So I actually grew up in Edison, New Jersey originally. Okay. Yeah, so I lived in uh, New Jersey uh, through elementary school. And my family, uh, my dad got a job out in Minneapolis, moved our whole family out to Minnesota. So lived out there during uh, middle school and high school. Oh, so you met your co-founder, Paul, early on. So we met in middle school. Yeah, I moved out to Minneapolis in sixth grade, but I went to a, a Jewish day school in New Jersey originally. So I met Paul in eighth grade at, at one of my friend's bar mitzvahs. Cool. And so what does the rest of your family do for work? Well, I come from a family of lawyers, so... Uh, my uh, my parents uh, met in college. They each pursued legal careers. My dad was in more of the corporate field, and my mom was public defender. Then got into politics briefly. And uh, as it turns out, my older siblings are also both attorneys. <laughs> I knew pretty early on that that wasn't going to be the path for me. But when you're a kid, it's like you think about all these different professions, but like you don't really know what that really means. Right. Um, because there's obviously a million jobs out there as you come and enter the world and into the business world. You see how many different types of businesses and types of jobs there are. I've mean, been doing this for the last seven years and change. It's like I've, there's so many ancillary businesses to the restaurant industry. You know, five different companies out there who just take pictures of invoices and upload them into your into your inventory management system. So, you know, all of these different people out there starting businesses, you know, just related to the restaurant industry. And no one's grown up being like, I want to start a company you know, taking pictures of invoices and uploading them to, uh, you know, inventory management system. So you went to the University of Michigan. What did you study when you were there? 
So I studied industrial engineering. How I got there, a little bit, little bit random. Well, really, all the way growing up, I was always more of a math guy. When I was looking at applying to college, for some reason I had it in my head that just going to college, you know, getting a degree in math is like not a practical thing to do. But engineering is involves a lot of math and is a more practical degree to have because everyone, you know, is hiring engineers. Right. So I didn't know, I didn't even know any engineers. Like I didn't really know anything. I decided, you know what, let's just apply to the engineering school. And then I pretty much applied to only engineering schools. Right. I was totally the same way with the county. It's like, oh yeah, I guess this sounds good. And so when you were at Michigan, did starting a business really enter your mind at all? I mean, it didn't really enter my mind in college. I mean, like on some level, it was kind of always in the back of my head, even growing up. I didn't. I just didn't really knew, know what it meant, but I, I kind of always thought I would be in business, you know, using air quotes, you know, a businessman of sorts. But I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't see it firsthand, and even my older siblings didn't go down that route. Again, it's just not something that I was around. It wasn't something that my family was doing. You know, Michigan's a competitive school. My friends are in the business school and in the engineering school, and it's like everyone is focused on getting a job at a big company. And so eventually you did get a job at a big company in New York City. Can you talk me through how that kind of all went down? So one of the summers in college, I was looking at, at different internships, and I got an internship offer from Ford to do an industrial and operations engineering type job in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I also had, a, had an opportunity at Citigroup in New York City. Again, it's like engineering jobs exist in places where there are large manufacturing plants uh, and finance jobs exist in big cities, primarily New York, and right. I wanted to be in New York. I'm like 20 years old. Where do I want to be spending my summer? Battle Creek, Michigan or Manhattan? Yeah, I did the internship at Citigroup and then I was like, you know, I'm just going to go try and be in finance. Ultimately, I got a job at J.P. Morgan in in an internal management analyst program in 2008, in the summer of 2008. Terrific time to be getting into finance. It's kind of already the beginning of the financial crisis and then, you know, you have September 2008 and the whole shitstorm starts. And so even the, the program that I was brought into was falling apart. I went, to go, I went to go look for another job. I started the search the summer of 2009. Somebody with no experience who's looking for a good job. You know, not many people were hiring. But as it turns out, Bridgewater was maybe one of the only people in the game who were hiring. And, you know, I, I applied for a couple jobs. A recruiter connected me to Bridgewater They interviewed me immediately. They literally offered me the job on the spot of the first interview, and I accepted on the spot of the first interview. Right? It's like the biggest hedge fund in the world. No playing hard to get. I knew it was not what I wanted to do long term, but it's going to be a better company, going to be around smart people, and it'll be a good opportunity. And literally there are days where we're, you know, we're sending tickets to move, whether bonds or cash, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, billions of dollars in aggregate getting moved like every day just on all these margin calls back and forth. So you knew it wasn't exactly what you wanted to do, but did you know what you wanted to do or were you still kind of just searching? Everything in life is about timing, right? So what, you know, so I get this job, um, having a good experience there, still kind of know in the back of my mind, you know, I'm looking for something different. So probably about a year in, you know, I start just thinking about how, what's the next step? What's the next move? Um, so at the same time, I was also interviewing externally. I mean, I interviewed at hedge funds in the city. I interviewed at some private equity firms. I also applied to business school. Uh, you know, I was just kind of like, I know I'm ready for a change and let's just throw some shit against the wall and kind of see see what plays out. You know, at the same time, I applied to uh, only two business schools. But, you know, even in the essays that I wrote and my approach, I applied to the two business schools 
that I deemed had the best entrepreneurship programs because my plan was if I'm going to business school, I'm going to get the tools to learn how to start a business and frankly, even try to maybe start a business while I was at business school. What inspired you to say, I need my own business, I need something bigger? What sort of was that driving force? I was just still young and still very eager to want to be put in a, in a position where I felt like I could learn a lot and I could really engage. And I also wanted to push myself, you know, because I wanted to see what I was capable of because, you know, I knew that there were more challenging things out there and that's what I was kind of searching for. And so talk to me about the timeline. At some point, Paul comes back and the two of you start talking again, you reconnect. Around the same time that I'm in the operations job at Bridgewater and starting to plant all these seeds of different, you know, what are the different things from interviewing and applying to business school and all that. Um, in that time frame, Paul was, he was off in Brazil and then briefly in China and some other entrepreneurial adventure. Didn't work out, comes back to New York. You know, I hadn't even seen him for a while. You know, we reconnect and he starts talking about uh, opening a restaurant. It's something that like we had talked about and hanging out when, you know, in our early 20s, just, you know, had a lot of like probably somewhat incoherent conversations around different, different restaurant concepts that we wanted to do and you know, strong opinions on the kind of things that we liked and what we didn't like. You know, one of the things that we had talked about previously, which was a restaurant focused on chicken fingers. You know, he'd come back from China. It's like he was like amazed at how big KFC was in China and how like American fried chicken throughout the world. But KFC is like the largest restaurant chain in China. So it's like wildly popular. Right. It's just like it's KFCs and 7-Elevens on every single corner. And, you know, I think it had just blown his mind, like, you know, American fried chicken taking over the world. And, you know, as we kind of talked about it, you know, we realized that, you know, no one really in New York was doing a chicken finger. It was really putting any effort into making a good chicken finger. And it's something that we both loved growing up as kids. Kind of one of those things where the more we talked about it, the more we talked ourselves into like, wow, this makes so much sense. Right. And so when did you start tinkering with the actual ingredients? So, you know, it, took, it was definitely a couple couple months of just talking about it. And at some point, um, Paul had bought a tabletop deep fryer at like a flea market and uh, in New Jersey. And I was living on the Lower East Side at the time with a few of my friends. And he brought the deep fryer to my apartment. And that was the first batch of fried chicken that we ever made out of that tabletop deep fryer. I mean, we knew we had to start with the food. Before I could even entertain this as a viable business, it's like, I got to be confident that we, we were going to be able to make a good chicken finger. Because right. otherwise, what's the, what's the fucking point? That was how it started. And then what happens next? Are you, you know, all in right away? Are you still waiting to hear back from the business schools? You know, I get, I hear back from the two business schools that I applied to. I got rejected from both of them. And, and I wrote my essays about how the reason why I'm going to business school, I mean, every business school is like, why are you going to business school? So, you know, I wrote these, you know, I wrote these essays about how my, my dream and passion is to be an entrepreneur, but I already kind of told the story of why I wasn't going to get in because it's like, if I'm in the admissions, it's like, wait a minute. So you got this kid who studied engineering, you know, doing operations at a hedge fund, and he's writes this whole long essay about he's passionate about being an entrepreneur, but like, you haven't done a single entrepreneurial thing in your life, so why, you know, something doesn't add up here. But, and I'm like, if I was reading that, I would probably think the same thing. And where's Sticky's at in the growth process here? We'd already gone past the point of, okay, we're making recipes, and then probably on to the next point of like, okay, we're going to do this. 
we, and we're gonna, we should start looking for real estate. We should start looking for a store. So, you know, that probably happened, you know, summer of 2011. I mean, it started as I put up, you know, the first money to get to get stickies started, even just on the R&D phase. And so, you know, just the, the meager amount of money that I'd saved in my, you know, handful of years at Bridgewater. And an investment company, if you want to make an investment, even if, whether it's buying a stock or investing in a private company, you have to get that approved. So right. I had to put it in front of my boss that, hey, I'm putting the seed investment in a chicken finger restaurant. And <laughs> so, awesome. of course, like that went around the office and everyone's talking about it. And people were asking, and you know. Were you nervous? Do you have doubts? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's a couple different things. I mean, we were confident in the concept. We had cooked enough chicken where I think we we're at the point where like feeling confident that we could make a delicious chicken finger. And I was 26 years old. I'd already been thinking about making different changes. You know, it's like if there's a time to take a risk, you know, that's the time. And so my, my risk appetite was high. We just went for it. I wasn't overthinking it. I was just, hey, I feel feel like this is a great business uh, opportunity, so let's just keep pushing it and see kind of how the cards play out. And, you know, we were probably arrogant, right? Like, we just we didn't know what we didn't know, and we were not even thinking about it. Something will come up that we'll have to do, and we'll just figure out how to do it. I just feel like that happens to me and, like, friends when we talk to each other about different businesses, like, or we come up with a business idea. We just keep poking holes into it until we don't even want to do it anymore. You're like, oh, well, what, if, what about this? Or we'd have to figure this out first. But it's just so cool. It's just you decided, eh, I'm going to do this. And you just started it. Every, literally everything was learned on the fly. So, you know, again, at some point we started looking at real estate. We looked at a couple different places, met with some landlords. And so we ultimately found a spot on 8th Street. It wasn't in particularly good shape, but it had the basic guts and bones of a restaurant. You know, it had a hood, had a walk-in box, had a three-compartment sink. You know, had 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 a bathroom. You know, had the basic guts of, of what you need. Yeah, we were not professional restaurant builders. Right. You're you're talking now as you know you're you said seven and change in, and this is how you're talking about your first location now. But at the time, did you have any idea how to run a restaurant? No idea. I mean, we really had no. I mean, neither of us really had a restaurant background or you know were professionally trained in this whatsoever. And also, we had no idea how to build a restaurant. Neither of us had any idea how to build a restaurant. I mean, we did not know what we were getting ourselves into. I've done it a bunch of times now, and so obviously I can, I can say that in, you know, in hindsight, uh, but I knew none of that then. Literally nothing. Somehow, you get involved with Bobby Flay and his show, Three Days to Open. How did that come about? When we were first getting started, I think Paul had met somebody at the Scripps Network, which owns the Food Network and the Travel Channel, and I think Paul had tried to pitch a TV show idea to them to whatever contact he had saying, hey, we're starting a restaurant, you should do a show about us. Didn't hear back, and then like, randomly out of the blue, somebody from Food Network contacts us, and it's like, oh, well, Bobby Flay is actually looking to do a show about helping uh, people start their, open their first restaurant. And so they decided that we were going to be the pilot episode of the Three Days to Open with Bobby Flay. You know, it was a, it was a crazy experience. Uh, you know, this, I think we filmed that show in, like, December of 2011. So, you know, we still don't really know how to run a restaurant. And, you know, we're filming this show. And, you know, while it was a, a cool experience, you know, the show, nothing that we were doing in the show was actually geared to helping us learn how to run a restaurant. You know, they were trying to film a show. Right. Uh, it was entertainment. It was entertainment, right? And I think, you know, I, I remember even thinking about timing of filming. Like, you know, our restaurant wasn't ready. I mean, we filmed in December... We didn't end up opening until the end of March. So our restaurant was not fully built out. We were not ready to open yet. 
and we asked them, hey, can we film this thing in January or February? We're just, we're not ready yet. And the producers of the show were like, no, it has to happen now. It has to happen now. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure from their perspective, like, they wanted us to not know what we we're doing, right? That's part of the fun, part of the chaos that, like, these guys are totally underprepared, have no idea what they're doing, are not ready. And that's kind of the narrative of the show that, you know, Bobby will come in and, and, and get us over the, the hump. And so did he help? And, you know, there were probably a handful of things that we learned along the way in the episode. But, you know, the reality is that this was a show called Three Days to Open. Uh, we filmed it over six days and we did not open for three months after the show ended. Well, interesting. And so, so it was a cool experience. It didn't really equip us to learn any more about how to run a restaurant. But, you know, when the show aired, obviously the Food Network has a huge reach. A ton of people saw it. So the publicity and awareness that we got off that show was incredible. I still have people today who are like, I've been fans ever since we saw you on the Bobby Flay show. I remember that night. We watched the show at the bar next door that had a TV. Whatever. They aired at like 9 to 10 p.m. Literally by like 10, 15, the first person had driven to the store and said, I just finished watching your episode and now I'm here. And so when you opened your first store, were you still at Bridgewater? We ended up signing a lease and we ended up getting the store open in March of 2012. And my intention was... I'm going to keep my job and I'm going to come in nights and weekends and, and, and help out as much as possible. Um, but you know, Paul was going to run the business on a day to day basis and I was going to be more of the behind the scenes guy. So, you know, we get the store open. Neither of us had any restaurant experience. It's a very steep learning curve to knowing how to, to run a restaurant. So basically to, to run a successful restaurant, you have to do a lot of things well, just to be able to make, you know, a small profit margin. Right. And if in any of those areas you're not doing them well, then you will not make any profit margin. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's stats out there about how many restaurants fail within the first year and all that. You know, it's challenging. You have to do a lot of different things well. We weren't running a restaurant in any kind of efficient or effective kind of way. I mean, the menu that we put up on month one changed to month two. Changed. I mean, we experimented with so many different things. Looking back at some of those original menus, I mean, it's, cr it's crazy even thing. I mean, we served ribs at some point in, first, in the first, like, two weeks. We came into this with a passion for food, so at least, you know, I knew that the food we were putting out, people were enjoying, um, but it's like we were losing money, you know, in a, in a big way. And, you know, I put up the kind of first money to get this thing started, but we'd long blown through that. Right. So what'd you do? I went to, uh, you know, my dad and one of my, uh, you know, one of my closest friends from high school and they helped fund us to get open and then, you know, really just covering a lot of operating losses. And so, you know, there's definitely a lot of stress around you know, we know we have something here, but we're losing money and we got to keep this thing afloat. And I'm going back to them every month. Like, oh, I need a little more money. I need a little more money. And, you know, yeah, look, that's tough. You know, obviously I didn't want to lose, you know, I, I didn't want to lose their money. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a big challenge. Probably took about six weeks after being open and Paul came to me and I kind of started to come to this realization as well. But like, you got to leave your job if we want to make this thing work. I remember even at my job, I'd have getting up from my desk and, and walking around the woods out there by the office on the phone with, you know, whatever vendor, whatever having issues, trying to put out fires or deal with issues for, you know, from, from Connecticut. And it became apparent that to really make it work, I, you know, I had, I had to, I had to leave and, and jump all in. I didn't want to let it fail because I believed so much and I'd spent so much time thinking about what, you know, what we could build. And then also now I've taken money. Now, not only have I put every single dime that I had to my name, 
But, you know, now I've taken money from my dad and from my friend. It's like, I don't want to lose their money. You're stressing me out thinking, so, thinking about it. You know, so I really, you know, I just had to kind of face that decision of like, you know, hey, yeah, I'm on a good career path here, but this thing needs my attention right now. Otherwise, all these bad things are going to happen. So, you know, I brought it up to my, to my boss and, you know, I wanted to do it in a very amicable way because, you know, I had no idea what was going to happen here. For all I know, this thing could fail and we could have closed the store in six months and I'd be looking, looking for, a for a job. So right. I'm like, you know, don't want to burn this bridge. I jumped full time in, into the business. And so what did you pick up first? What was your role in the beginning? We were all doing everything. I mean, you know, first, <laughs> the overarching role, like, how do we get this thing to stop losing money? How do we stop the bleeding so that we can have a sustainable business? So, I mean, the first, I mean, you know, just like in any restaurant, right? What are the big, what are the big controllables? Cost. Cost of goods mm -hmm. and labor costs. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when I, I kind of jumped in and tried to get some of these things under control, um, you know, primarily, you know, switching vendors, you know, we'd accrued a nice heft, healthy debt with, with our original vendor, which I tried to negotiate and work off. But, you know, ultimately we had to switch vendors in that interim period, you know, shortly after I, shortly after I started pulled, pulled out from our original food vendor and started going to the restaurant depot. I was literally the whole, the whole store was being uh, supplied by me driving to the restaurant depot, you know, three or four times a week. Oh my God. Literally filling my car to the brim with chicken and everything else, like putting ice packs around chicken to try to keep it cool. I mean, I was very intimate with every single thing at the restaurant depot. And how long did that last? You know, I probably did that for about like a month and a half. It was cool, but it was also really eye-opening because, you know, we had this first food vendor who came in and like we had accrued this huge debt. So I'd spent all this time looking at all the invoices. they. I mean, I looked through every single invoice that they had sent. I'm like, oh, the hell did we get to like 50 or 60 grand in debt in like a few months to this food distributor? It's like, and so then I go to the restaurant depot and it's like, holy shit, they were just gouging us like crazy. Like I can't, I couldn't believe what they were charging. Like. I literally found things that, that at the restaurant depot, they charge you half of what these guys were charging us for, for the exact same thing, not just the same product, but like the same manufacturer. And so how long were you operating just one store? So, uh, you know, we opened that store in March of 2012 and we didn't open up our second store till July of 2014. So, I mean, we were just in that store around the clock for, you know, over two years. And at what point did you stop working in your business and start working on your business? At what point did you step out of the kitchen? You know, I mean, it definitely wasn't just with the first store. I mean, you know, again, we were, we were trying, you know, I was trying to figure out how the hell can we get this thing to be profitable? And like, I mean, originally we had hired a staff, a team, and like at the very beginning, we weren't doing like shift roles, right? We weren't working the cooking line or, you know, we were more overseeing and engaging with customers and that kind of thing. You know, at some point, like, hey, we're going to be here. Like, we got to not have somebody else here that we're paying because we can't afford to pay them. You know, definitely the first couple of years where I was trying to do a little bit of everything. So what's an example of something that you just happened to pick up? So we started delivery. We hired a couple of delivery guys. Uh, but, you know, we noticed, like, we're getting a lot more delivery orders for dinner than we were for lunch. Because it's just Greenwich Village. So it's a neighborhood. People who live there are there at night. They're working somewhere else during the day. And we had... The delivery guy who'd come for some of these day shifts and wasn't taking that many deliveries. So it's like, well, I, I got a bike. I ride my bike. Why do we, why am I paying this guy to sit around and take, you know, 
an order or two an hour when like I could be doing that in between what else, whatever else I'm working on. So, I mean, I was literally our daytime delivery guy for probably a good like six months. And so at what point did you end up turning the profit and what was the key? Probably like six or nine months in, got it to at least a stable break even. And we were not in a position we were producing detailed monthly P&L reports or we were not tracking, you know, sales and labor costs in any kind of sophisticated way. I mean, I was looking at the numbers, but I was more looking at the bank account. So the real turning point was just like when we were at a point where I didn't have to go asking for more money to to fund our dwindling bank account. And then what was the decision like to open your second store? Yeah, I mean, look, I think when we we started the business, we we never had the intention of just wanting to open up one store. Uh, You know, we had, you know, we thought it was a a business and a concept and, a, and, a, and an area in the market where we thought there was an opportunity to build a, a, a brand and a big and a big business beyond just one location. You know, and I even approached everything that we did. Hey, does this not just does this make sense to do right now? But is this something that is going to be part of the business at a bigger scale? How quickly did you grow after the second store? You know, we know that we always wanted this business to be more than just one store, and so you know we had. Uh, gotten in touch with a professional investor who worked at a private equity firm and had invested through his firm in a lot of different restaurants, but was really interested in the field and really, really savvy about kind of the, 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 the market and the national marketplace. And so, you know, he was interested in investing personally in building a second store. So even went beyond that, he made a deck on our business and the business prospects, sent it around to his friends and a bunch of his friends wanted to invest too. So, you know, what was originally going to be enough to raise for one new store ended up coming back hey, there's actually demand for a lot more than that you know so we so we raised that money we you know to get second store open uh had some setbacks building it but got it open and it was huge success from literally night one and i mean we had we had a line out the door from the first night that we opened right let's fast forward a little bit eight stores really how did you manage to open those next six stores so it's never only one thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had to really, you know, I had to really learn the business and from a lot of different elements from, you know, not only how do you hire, how do you train people, how do you build stores? You know, the first store where it's like a little hallway, hole in the wall, like people would walk by, they had no idea what we served. People would walk in like, oh, do you sell burgers? Do you sell pizza? It's a comic book store. Like people had no clue. Yeah, the look and feel of the sticky store is just totally unique. Most store, most restaurants just don't look like that, you know? When we were first, I remember when we were building that second store, you know, we talked to one like kind of design and build firm and, you know, they had showed us, you know, very professional. They showed us portfolio of the different restaurants they built and they all kind of had the same look and feel, which was really in at the time, which was reclaimed wood. Everyone was putting every fast casual concept that opened in like 2013 or 2014. They had the whole aesthetic was like clean, white, light colored, we reclaimed wood everywhere. And I'm like, you know, I think that's cool. That's a nice look. We are explicitly not, whatever that is, I want to be the opposite of that. (laughs) We wanted it to be like a little mini vacation. I spent all my day in an office with this white lights and this sterile environment and buttoned up people. And, you know, I'm going to come in here and there's going to be graffiti on the wall and all this crazy sauces and shit on my chicken. And so, you know, I think even just, you know, how we came up with the menu to how we even just approached running our business for better or for worse. It was always, we're going to do the opposite of what everyone else does. You know, we wanted to give people a unique experience. How big do you see Sticky's growing? You know, look, it's like, that's not who I am, right? Honestly, yeah. my dream, you know, my dream is not tied to a certain number of units or a certain, 
you know, number of, you know, company-wide revenue or certain bottom line number. That's not what my dream is tied to. You know, my, my dream is really tied to just building a great business and continuing to be a place where we're giving customers great experiences and we're offering jobs and opportunity and development for our people here. You know, there's a lot of great things that happen here on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis. And just like, how can we take the great things that we're doing and do them at bigger scale? And then how can we get better at the things that we're doing? And how can we do even more? So along the way, right, you're at JP, you're at Bridgewater. You must have met so many people that, that thought about starting businesses, that had great ideas. What do you think stops so many of those people? I've been in a position, you know, having having been doing this for long enough, that I've talked to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, from one way or another, a friend of a friend, they get introduced to me and they're like, oh, whether it's people who just want to start their own business in general, people who want to leave finance to start their own business, or people who want to get into the restaurant industry, you know, I've talked to countless people who, you know, are interested and wanted to hear about my experience or kind of pick my brain and, you know, get kind of, you know, my, my thoughts on it. And look, probably one of two things, right? It's either, is that, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't really sure what they want to do. They might not be happy with their what they're currently doing and they might see entrepreneurial success stories. There's, you know, definitely people who have that, oh, I want to build that or I want to do that. And I've seen all these stories. Um, but, you know, ultimately maybe aren't so sure about what they really want to do. You know, they know, you know, they know that they don't want to do what they're doing, but, you know, they're not really sure if this one idea that they're talking about is really what their passion is. So, you know, look, that's a challenge. I mean, look, I've faced that challenge at various points in time, and I know a lot of people have as well. Like, there's so many, you know, we're in a, we're in a time where there's just a million different options out there for different things to pursue and different things to do and just with so much information. I mean, you just go online and see the million different job postings out there. So, you know, it's a challenge to even know what you want to do, right? Sometimes knowing what you want is the hardest thing. So, Absolutely. you know, I think that I think that is probably, you know, holding some people back. And then, you know, a lot of people are apprehensive about change because change is hard. Change is painful. And, you know, there might there are plenty of people out there who are probably unhappy with what they're doing. And, oh, haven't I thought or an idea of, oh, you know, the dream of trying to open this business or start this thing. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of unknown. You know, a lot of these things don't work out for a whole host of reasons. And so, you know, that 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 change is painful. And people, you know, at the end of the day might come back and say, Maybe I'm comfortable where I'm at, you know. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm not. Maybe this is not the most fulfilling thing, but you know, that that unknown out there really really looks scary. So I'm just gonna stay. I'm gonna stay here. What would your advice be to someone just starting out, just starting their own business? I mean, look, you have to be willing to do whatever it takes to make your business succeed. Time and the energy and and really just the mindset of I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make this work. I'm not gonna let it fail. And Whatever, whatever the company needs me to be, I'm going to be in that moment. And whatever hat I have to wear, whatever thing I have to learn, whatever challenge I have to overcome, I'm going to do what I can to, to be what the company needs me to be to get that thing done. It's really fulfilling, but it's really stressful and really challenging and, you know, really draining. There's plenty of, like, cliches around, uh, you know following your passion and you know if you love what you do it doesn't feel like work and you know like yeah that's all great and and i love what i do but you know that doesn't mean that every day i come in like you know skipping excited to face every challenge that that is on my plate you know it's uh 
you know, you have to be, you know, you have to be motivated. And, you know, so part of it is, you know, people need to understand what motivates them and what drives them. And they need to tap into that because without that drive and motivation, you're not going to be putting yourselves in those situations of, I need to, do, you know, pushing yourself to do whatever it takes to, to get things done. And, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, when I try to take this approach with everything is that you have to be thoughtful and opinionated, but you also have to be open-minded. And it's, for me, it's like tiptoeing that balance of, I have to be decisive, but I also have to be open-minded because if I just go shoot from the hip of like, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and, you know, people have differing opinions, that's not going to work because nobody knows everything. And if you try to approach a problem thinking that you already know the answer, then, you know, there's a pretty good chance that the thing that you think is wrong and that you're not going to solve the problem. Big thanks again to John. That story is just so cool to me because John comes from a family of lawyers, you know, and he just broke out on his own and said, I'm going to start this chicken finger restaurant. And he did. And he's expanded and it's growing. And every time I go, there's always a big line. The last thing that John said really resonated with me too, which was that it's so hard to pick what you actually want, you know? And it reminded me of a book I read called Nudge by Michael Thaler. And it talks about how people who have three choices to pick from are immensely more satisfied with their decision than if you had, let's say, 20 choices to pick from. You're always playing the what if game when you have 20 choices or more. And when you're going out today looking for a job or looking for a career, trying to decide what you want to do, it's not just 20 choices. It's seemingly unlimited, right? So, so many different things you could try, so many different avenues you could pursue. And so definitely check out Stickies on social media. And if you're in the New York City area, you have to stop by. It will absolutely be worth it. Thanks again to everyone that's listening. Big shout out to John Sherman and the rest of the Stickies team. And keep an eye out for the next episode, episode three, being released next Monday. Thanks again.